Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So I'll go first, change of pace. Very good. Um, so if you are somewhat new to our podcast, this first thing that we always talk about, what is astonishing us, is a um, communal spiritual discipline, um, that it's easy no matter what kind of work you do, it's easy to just slip into um, bitterness and it's easy to just complain, take, yeah, complain and, and not notice um, what is good and what is right and just have all of your energy and attention go to what is difficult or what is hard and, and you kind of miss, you know, miss the glory of it. And, and one of our presuppositions is that the church is the body of Christ and that God is um, just at work uh, in the world through the church and that God is faithful and um, producing fruit, um, you know, through the vine all the time. And um, we don't want to let um, the enemy of our souls rob us of our ability and our commitment to seeing and noticing. So so the practice of astonishment is just really another way of, of saying thanksgiving and, and praise. And it's really a, um, but it's a discipline. It doesn't always come naturally. It's easy to be astonished when you win the lottery or something metaphorically surprising happens. But um, it's just more difficult to have that posture. And we were talking before we get started, like it's hard and it's easy. I mean, there are lots of things that astonish me, but not in a good way. <laughs> but that's not the point of this. Um, the point of this is to um, raise an Ebenezer and and notice and give thanks for for what is good, um, and not take it for granted. Um, so, my astonishment this week is we are getting ready to return to in person worship in just about and four weeks. I think we have four Sundays left before we come back to in person worship, and I don't know what that will be like, um, but. I think it's just worth astonishing and marveling. I do astonish at the fact that we we are still here, that we've been apart for more than a year. And, you know, the, the fear and the anxiety at the beginning of this was, you know, the community wouldn't be strong enough to bear it and people wouldn't, you know, wouldn't love one another enough to, to, to stay connected to one another. And people would begin to just not have... An, an authentic, um, you know, that people's love would wane and um, their zeal would wane. And I think, you know, people, we, we can't hold, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but people are still loving one another and people are still feeling called by God to be a part of this community. And that's astonishing. After all of this time, not being able to do the thing that most defines us and particularly, I mean, for any church, the practice of gathering as a community is definitive, but especially for a church that part of our call is to be this multi-ethnic community in a world that is so um, ghettoed and siloed, you know, ethnically. And so people are saying, I want to be a part of this community. One primary reason is because I want to have friendships and connections with people. I, you know, I want that foretaste of um, the ultimate eternal kingdom of God. And so to not be able to gather in person is, is a particular loss. Um, and so the fact that we are still a church and, and I don't, 
I refuse to take that for granted. And I am astonished that, you know, for so much of our history as a church that is being transformed and has gone through a really extreme transformation, we felt marginal for so long. And in terms of resources, um, you know, that is still true, although less than it used to be. But, you know, to recognize that there's, that there is, to borrow the Freedom Schools song, you know, something inside so strong that there was something in us that was not visible, that by the power of the Holy Spirit was more than sufficient um, to nurture the bonds within the body, even while we were apart. You know, that's just incredible and astonishing and wonderful. And I'm, I'm so grateful and thankful. And, you know, it's not even about, well, what will that day be when we first come back together? Like that day doesn't have to be this, you know, dream come true, end all be all kind of day. Like we are still a community and that is such a good thing and such an unexpected thing and something that fear told us wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. And so to just have this um, additional experience that the grace of God is sufficient and that what is in us is not of us and so is not under threat and is not in limited quantities and that God really is up to something, has been up to something. And when all we want is to be faithful to God, then th- then we can walk in peace and hope no matter what's happening. Um, so anyway, I'm just astonished and I'm marveling at that and I'm so thankful first to God and then to the people in this community who are together for no other reason than the fact that they believe it pleases the Lord for them to make, um, make church together. Um, when they could all be somewhere easier, they could all be somewhere more comfortable. They could all be somewhere bigger. They could all be somewhere with better resources and they choose to be together just, uh, to be a burning bush. Um, and it's just so beautiful and I'm so grateful to um, the people who are already saints um, who are gathering at the Grove. So I am astonished and and just really the happiest pastor I know. Well, that's that's good stuff. It's really beautiful. And it connects to my astonishment this week. Um, You mentioned at the beginning of the pandemic, you guys were worried about if your if your love would be enough to hold you together as a community. And for me, the fear that came up in the pandemic was um, if I was going to be enough for the church Mm -hmm. as a pastor, if I was going to provide enough, if my gifting was going to be enough, would I work hard enough? Could I do enough? Mm -hmm. And um, the answer to that is, of course, no, (laughs) uh, because I am not all things to all people. And even though I know that, I still fall into the trap of trying to be and do way too much. And uh, one of the things that this pandemic has taught me is, you know, well, listen, you are not God, Hinton. You, you can't mm-hmm. do everything. And I mean, I hit the wall pretty hard um, in this season in terms of stress and doing. And I am grateful. What, what is astonishing uh, to me uh, today is we've got two elders who have been stepping up in ways that are amazing and wonderful. As a matter of fact, I was talking to one um, of the elders, uh, Cindy, last Thursday or Friday, and I was just saying how 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 proud I am of them, proud in the best sense of that word. And I just burst into tears because I'm just so grateful for the amount of work that they've been doing. 
um, Cindy and another elder, Robin, uh, have just been working so hard. All the elders have been working, but uh, those two in particular have just been amazing, especially the past couple of months. Um, we've been uh, seeking to hire a new piano player, um, and uh, they've been spearheading that work. Uh, Robin, um, head of the personnel, and, and uh, um, Cindy is part of our worship team. And uh, they've been meeting with um, a potential piano player, and they said, you know, we think we found the one. And I could not make the meeting mm -hmm. for the formal interview. And um, I said, well, I'll, I'll meet with him at another time. And so I met with him a week later, and I thought I was just going to lay out the vision for mm -hmm. our worship culture and where we were going. And this guy said, I am so happy because you've just said everything mm -hmm. Cindy and Robin told me last week. So clearly you guys have been talking about vision and your elders have it because what you just said, mm -hmm. they said last week. And that just blessed my soul. It's like, oh, these, these elders really do get it and have um, made me understand um, <laughs> how essential and non-essential I am, yeah. right? In, in yeah. a good way, in a yeah. good way. Um, and their, their work is transformative for our community because they are modeling for other elders and for future elders what the role looks like because, you know, part of the dysfunction that can come with our Presbyterian culture is this idea that we elect elders to kind of um, hold back pastoral power. We don't want pastors to be too high on a pedestal, so we have elders to keep them in check. And, uh, you know, and that is really hurting a lot of our congregations um, yeah. because it doesn't allow pastors to lead. And, I mean, there's, there's that problem, which I think is rampant in the culture of the Presbyterian Church that we serve. Um, and then another problem that is rampant that in some churches also elders are there to control uh, the people, right? Yes. And, you know, yes. so, you know, we don't want people just to be going off and doing ministry. Everything needs to be run through this group of leaders for permission, which really translates to control. Um, and then the third dysfunction that I think is really common is we elect elders and then it's their job just to do all the stuff. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so you serve your term mm -hmm. for three years, you you work like a dog for three years and Where then you, you roll off and you mm -hmm. don't do anything. Right. So there's just these ways that, again, like it is a very common culture as I've experienced it. Um, but I don't think that it is an authentic culture. Like there's nothing right. authentic mm -hmm. in um, sort of the documents that are sort of meant to be North Star for the polity of the Presbyterian Church. There's nothing in those that says elders are elected to control the pastor or elders are elected to control the people sure. or elders are elected to do the ministry on behalf of the people. None of those things are true. None of those things are authentically part of our Presbyterian culture, but they are, I think, ways that the culture of the outside world has seeped into our communities. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so, again, like this authoritarian structure of some people are leaders are in charge and leaders control and leaders are responsible and those are so common in the outside culture they've got they're they're so absent they're so conspicuously absent in examples of leadership within 
within scripture, within the revelation of scripture, and certainly within the personhood of Jesus. Like these are just not the values of, of, of how community is formed or how it functions um, or how people grow. So, um, and I think like what's so interesting about your story and in mine, you know, I mean, we, we love the Lord and we're called into ministry and we find just such deep joy and meaning in this call. And it's a gift and a privilege every day to be a pastor. Um, and we care. And so we, I mean, we, to do the work is joy, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and then it's just easy without really examining it to sort of unconsciously slip into the space where you feel like, you do sort of feel like it's all up to you. I mean, even as you're standing in the pulpit yes. preaching the exact opposite, you, you know, there's just this whisper in your ear, again, saying like, you're not enough or you, you know, this won't survive or what. I mean, and so to discover anew that, I mean, it sounds so stupid to say it, but to discover anew that the grace of Jesus is sufficient for the church of Jesus. And that I'm not Holy Spirit Junior. Correct. And that, and that we weren't made to function as, you know, ever-flowing streams of strength, like, you know, that God can be magnified in our weaknesses, in our limits, and in our humanity. And, and when we overfunction, you know, it's really not cute. And so there are going to be seasons where we work very, I mean, there's going to be whatever, like seasons where of more and less and mm-hmm. ebb and flow. But um, I think one thing that has been hard for, for all pastors um, in this season where a lot of what we do can't be done, you know, so there's just an element of we're not having community meals. So the part of your time where you came to the community meal and met people and stuck around after to help get like, like that part of your schedule is cleared and, you know, you're not doing a vacation Bible school. So that part of your time when you were working with folks to create that and supporting people who were administering it and helping connect people and then involve, like that part of your schedule is cleared. And the great temptation in this time has been to like prove your productivity and replace you know, one for one, like if we're not doing something in person, then we're going to do a virtual alternative. And and I think a lot of that comes from our anxiety of wanting to show ourselves necessary and, and resisting that and saying, I, I don't want, I know my, I know the Lord is not calling people in our congregation to function in anxiety. And so I don't want to model that in the church and like just discerning. We've talked about this over and over again, like not being able to tell what faithfulness looks like in this season um, when we've really struggled with it. Are we doing too much? Are we doing too little? We don't know. And so to be approaching what is, if not an end, at least a shift, um, and just to be able to marvel that what we were walking in hope that the Lord would be sufficient and then realizing like, oh, look, (laughs) we're still here. And that, I don't take it for granted. And I absolutely know that I won't speak for you, but it was not due to my deep, wise discernment. It was not due to my, you know, it was, it was in spite of our lack, in spite of our unknowing, in spite of our hitting a wall, in spite of our languishing, in spite of all the things that we, um, less than optimal conditions in which we were trying to do ministry, um, the church was not at stake. Salvation was not at stake. Our belovedness was not at stake. And God's goodness was not at stake. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, coming to space and thing, we were right to resist the temptation 
to walk in anxiety and to discern what's a right change and what's an overreaction and, you know, be able to live with, you know, I think what this season has shown us so clearly that we resist all the time is the truth that we are not in control. We're not in control. We're not in control. And there's a lot of times when life looks, quote, normal, that we functionally have the illusion that we are in control. And when we lose that illusion, it's very disorienting. But it was always an illusion. It was always an illusion. And, I mean, illusions and idols Mm. function in much the same way. So... Yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, we held a series of Zoom retreats as a, as a board of elders. And um, our primary question was, what is God saying to us in this season? As we enter into this great unknown, thinking it was only going to last, what, a couple of months at the longest, right? I just want to note for the record that I resisted singing from Frozen 2. You're welcome. Go on. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. Thank you. Well, and we, we, we asked this question, well, what is God saying to us? And we put some things down on paper. We think God is saying this, this, and this. And we named, named those things. And then my assumption was that, okay, we're, this is going to start popping off. We're going to start getting to work. And nothing happened for months and months and months. And I did or I attempted to do what I usually do, which is to step into it and say, okay, I'm going to put this thing on my back and we're going to carry it. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it because of other things I needed to do. I was homeschooling my child. And, um, and so it just, it just sat there. This, these words that we said, God has spoken to us and it's right here. And uh, just within the past few months, a couple of elders, and I, I have to trust that it was the spirit moving upon them saying, okay, now it's time. And uh, they have really gone to work in a way that is beautiful and wonderful. And I think an example to the whole church. And so I, I'm yeah. just grateful. Well, and I think that it, it's another um, example to just look at, I think, the right tension between being and doing that exists in the body of Christ, right? That it just, and I mean, there are things we do and that we um, want to do and that that are just an embodiment and a manifestation of our values and they're a way of um, creating connections between people inside the community and people outside the community. I mean, like like doing is important and a, and a church that doesn't do things that um, manifest the kingdom is, I think, sick, right? Mm. And also, we don't exist to do. You know, we are, we are a people. We, and so just that, I mean, it's interesting because I think we always feel like, and I'm so guilty of this, is I just want to be able to say, like, well, at the Grove, we do this and we do this and we do this and we do this. And and that and those ways of serving our our community, I mean, they matter. They're, the Lord moves through them. They're marks of authenticity and honestly there there are ways that people in the community grow deeper into their own relationship with Jesus like one story that springs to mind is a couple years ago there's a ministry in in the Charlotte area called Room in the Inn and it is a um and it is a collaboration between all kinds of different um, institutions primarily churches but 
also YMCAs and universities and other faith communities, and they collaborate together to provide space in their buildings for our homeless neighbors one night during during the coldest months here, which is four months here. And so they work with a sort of centralized um, agency that serves homeless neighbors here called A Roof Above. And anyway, it's a, it's a big thing, but, but it works out to... Um, all together, every all these institutions doing a very almost shamefully small part. Like once a week, we host twelve neighbors, feed you know, provide a dinner, provide a safe place to sleep, provide a breakfast and a bag lunch. But when all of these individuals, individual institutions come together and do that, you know, it 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 makes a difference, and it does not solve, um, it does not correct the imbalance of people enduring homelessness in a place where there's so much right um but it but it does provide a safe space for a period of time so anyway a couple years ago um at the grove I was just really in a space of discerning like do we because it was a huge lift for us as a congregation especially at that time in our transformation we were down to like you know a third of the size that we were today just like even paying for it to keep the part of the building heated it was just a thing and I was really trying to discern like can we do this should we do this you know so many institutions in the city of Charlotte do it if we don't participate we won't be missed like should we focus on the mm. things that only we do right like it's just just a space of discernment and um I was talking to a woman in our community Gwen who um, had sort of coordinated it in in pa- in the past year, and I just said like you know I'm, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And she said, I have never. F- I, what did she say? I can't believe she. I think she said I've never felt as close to Jesus as I did on those nights when I was serving. And what she was saying to me, and like just helping me recover is when we do things for Jesus and like Jesus is there in the midst of it. And so it's not just a functional task that's getting accomplished. Um, it is also an experience of spiritual transformation. I was going to say it's, it's also a spiritual practice. Correct. And so I think, and you know, that's a little hard to put into words because I, in no way do I think that our homeless neighbors exist for the spiritual transformation of the mm-hmm. members of our church, like that's gross. I think the the existence of homelessness in our community is an indictment and a judgment against us, right? So there's just nothing, you know, it, that's a hard thing to name. Um, and also, it's just true. And so when we are doing ministry for a right orientation, it is not, it does serve the people that we're trying to serve, we can be no under no illusions about it saving anybody because it doesn't. It's just this tiny, tiny thing. And also the Lord meets us in our tiny crumbs of what we can give and and manifest it in ways. And so I think just, just that tension of if we're doing something, it needs to authentically serve our neighbors, but our primary purpose is to become a community. And so to say, like we started the pandemic and we discerned God is saying something to this. And then our expectation is, okay, now we know we're going to hit it. We're going to get to work. We're going to do something. And to say like, no, actually there's a period of like, mm, fallowness Mm -hmm. that actually is about 
um, something the mystery of the spirit yeah into and becoming and now in the season where it's not just you putting it on your back and carrying it across the finish line it's this authentic expression of the values of the community and we don't control that and I think as pastors we get really nervous when we're like oh gosh either I can't give everything I think I quote should be able to give or I am giving everything I should be able to give and it ain't enough not enough (laughs) and just having to sort of get up every day anyway in your not enoughness and trust that God is enough again like I can talk about that in a Bible study all day long I can preach it in a sermon all day long but living Living with it it is a real challenge for all of us and that challenge is where the magic happens listen on the way here (laughs) I was thinking about this past Sunday sermon and how terrible it was (laughs) and just wallowing in my I'm not enoughness, mm-hmm. right? And and it just had to have been the Holy Spirit because I started thinking, well, who said that you had to be good? Mm-hmm. Who said that you had to perform? Mm-hmm. And then I just I sat with that thought for a minute and I thought, okay, no, I need to show up. I don't have to be good, but I need to show up knowing truth. that God is good. The scripture is good. The truth the is spi- good. The scripture is good. The truth is good. Yep. Soak in that goodness and simply be an instrument of it. Right. I don't have to be correct. good. I don't have to show up and perform. Right. And I mean, um, the, that's that but it's whole hard tension. To, it's hard to. It's really hard to do. Hard but, to keep that in your head when you're making videos every week. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I mean, it's it's hard to remember that we're not selling anything, right? Like we're not. This is, I mean, if this is what it is, then it it will bear fruit regardless. And um, like I know, I can't remember any of the details of the story, but I know that it's true. And it reminds me of, um, you know, that's one of Paul's major things. Is everyone was accusing him of not being a very good speaker, and he's sort of talking to his churches and being like, "And, like, <laughs> great. Okay, I'm not a very good speaker. Is Jesus still Lord? <laughs> I think so. Like, carry so on, let's get right? On with like, it. Because these dudes are good speakers, then you're going to abandon the gospel and Mm -hmm. put yourself in slavery to them. Like, it isn't about, you know, again, I'm not here to entertain you like this. And and I'm not against entertaining someone. I'm just saying, like, there's something. And I think this is hard in that world and in ours when I think entertainment and escapism is about the best we can hope for because we've so given up on shalom as a possibility. But, um, you know, this idea that we don't have to be good because God is good and you know we have to be faithful and faithfulness sometimes looks like a hot mess and and that's okay. And I just remember the story I read somewhere about a preacher who just like I think back in sort of the early 1900s and was just accumulating a huge following and was just not a very good preacher and and better preachers would come to him and say like what the what? Like you kind of suck. Like how come all these people come to hear you and And he was just saying, you know, like, I know, like, I know that I'm not that great. And essentially, gosh, I wish I could remember the specifics. But I mean, his point was like, and what's great about that is like, no one is here to hear me. Like, they're here for the gospel message, right? So there's not like nobody's getting distracted by like my eloquence or my passion or whatever. Like, I'm pretty, frankly, mediocre, but that makes the gospel that I'm preaching 
you know, all the more accessible. And ch- I mean, like, I don't, I mean, it's just an interesting That's thing. Good. Like, I, like and I think that. for a lot of preachers, you know, if we, it would be a, it, it would be like a really um, terrible dilemma if we had a moment and someone says like, okay, you could be a faithful preacher of a small church that never really looked like anything or you could be just a dynamic, wonderful preacher that everyone celebrated and everyone would think you were the greatest preacher ever, but you wouldn't really be faithful, but not in ways that anyone could tell. And I just think a lot of us, myself included, like would so struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Like, do we want to be the thing or do we want to look look like like the the thing? thing? And so often, like, I just want to look like the thing. (laughs) And, ah, that is like the biggest temptation because it never fails. Like we both felt like last week's sermons were kind of like, eh. but it never fails that people will come back to me on those weeks, not on the weeks where I'm like, <laughs> let me brush my shoulders off. Cause I really had a thing. People don't talk to me, but like on the weeks where I'm like, Oh, that was uh, adequate maybe. And then people will say, you know, the Lord really ministered to me in that. And it, and it, my ego is so annoyed by that. <laughs> But my soul is saved by it. This idea that this is not up to me. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, we've talked before about how, and I mean, people talk about a spirit of excellence in the church. And I just feel like that is so, when people have that conversation so casually without defining what excellence is, or when they just let the culture define what excellence is, or when they sacrifice the substance for the appearance. I mean, it's just really... Um, it, 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 it really, I mean, I was going to say, I can't even think of a word big enough because it's not, it's not cute. <laughs> like, well, I, we ordered dinner out, uh, last Friday night from our favorite place and, um, I got my usual dish and it comes with avocado and, um, I opened it up and it was just beautiful, rice and bean and chicken dish with avocado and onions on the top and the avocado was so just perfectly spring green on one side and then I turned it over and it was it was not edible Mm -hmm. and that that's what that reminds me of it on, on the surface it looks great but when you turn it over no yeah I heard someone was talking about a preaching illustration of I mean, this is a very old illustration, but like going down into the mines and having a canary in the mines and the canary could tell when there was toxic gas. And the preacher was saying like, you know, there's a lot of things that are killing us that are totally invisible to us and we don't even know. And I think that's so real that there are things that just can look really good in the body of Christ, but they are not, they're not building us up. They're not edible or even, you know, distract us. And we don't even discern or see that there are things that are just killing us, and we don't even, we can't perceive them. We can't them. perceive it. Wow. So, what are you thinking about? I am thinking about the Sikh community following the shooting at the FedEx facility yep. in Indiana, what, about a week and a half ago? Yep. And um, as an African-American, I want to make sure I pause for the suffering of other groups because it is very easy to um, focus on the stress and struggle of being African-American in these days. Um, And so it seems, you know, when I turn on the news, 
Uh, the news has already uh, left that shooting um, yeah. because there have been others, unfortunately. And uh, I'm reminded that, um, you know, post 9-11, the first hate crime was a, a shooting of yeah. a Sikh person. Uh, and then in 2012, there was the shooting of the, in, in the Sikh house of worship um, in Wisconsin. And then uh, the shooting uh, a couple weeks ago or a week and a half ago in Indiana, um, not all the victims, but many of the victims were Sikh. And I'm reminded that I do not know enough about that community. I am not in contact as I should be with people from that community. And so I've taken some time just to um, do a little reading and research on Sikhism um, because one of my one of my complaints about many of us living in America is that we don't know history, we don't know our, our neighbors, we don't know other groups, and this is a blind spot for me. And so um, as a follower of Jesus, um, I was moved to do some reading about Sikhism, and uh, it's 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 a beautiful religion. Um, of course, you know there are points of theology with which I disagree. Uh, I am a passionate follower of Jesus. I believe He is the way, the truth, and the life. And um, I know that Sikhs are not my enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, the word Sikh means learner. As a disciple of Jesus, I can connect with that. The word disciple also means learner. Also means learner. Uh, Sikhism uh, developed in northern India um, around the 16th century, around the time of the Protestant Reformation. So it's mm-hmm. it's about the same age as, as the Protestant church. And um, the, the founder, um, Guru Nanak, uh, has a beautiful story. Um, when he was a young man, he went to work for the government and he was discouraged and disgusted by what he saw, the corruption and uh, the wealthy and powerful taking advantage of, uh, of the weak and the poor, um, uh, the caste system. Um, and uh, one day when he was, he was 30, he was taking a bath in the river. And the story goes, he was, he was swept away into the presence of God and there God spoke to him. And um, when he emerged, he emerged in that same river three days later, and he said, there is one God. No, he said, there is no, he, the, the, that part of the world was, um, uh, you had Islam and Hinduism. He came out of the river, he said, there is no Islam, there is no Hinduism, there is just one God. And when you read uh, the, the Sikh sacred text, it begins with that. There is just one God. And uh, there is a strong current in Sikhism uh, for equality and justice. Um, I did not realize this, but they were one of the first of, of the world's major religions. I mean, I think they're the fifth largest at this point, but they are uh, some of the first to really um, uh, have women uh, leading not just uh, like congregations, but the like the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to someone uh, lecture on Sikhism. They said, you know, uh, Sikhs, uh, 
uh, surprise, surprise, said, hey, women are people too. And <laughs> that, that's a, a strong current in them, uh, in, in, their, uh, in their faith. And this, this anti-caste, anti-racism mm-hmm. um, 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 feel, bent work. Um, and their, their sacred book is not a narrative like the Bible. It's, it's a collection of poems and songs. And when they get together, they basically read the text and sing the text and meditate. And um, I am embarrassed to say that I just realized within the past couple of days that there is a large Sikh house of worship within walking distance of Derrida Church. Mm-hmm. I've been driving past it for five years. and Because there's, there's no sign that says, right. but I see people going in, and I assume that it was Hindu, and it's a Sikh house of worship. And, um, yeah, so I, I am just thinking about that community. Um, again, I think what they believe is beautiful, and um, I am looking forward to being a better neighbor mm-hmm. um, as, as a follower of Jesus. And I, I'm also reminded, you know, uh, in the church today, especially in evangelical circles, there seems to be this, this kind of tribalism that says, if you don't believe exactly what I believe, then you are the enemy. Right. And I'm reminded of the, the other, or, not, or the other. At well, least, no, I, yeah. I think it's 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 the enemy, and you mm-hmm. either have to convert and think exactly like me, or you need to go, or at the very least, stay over there. And I'm just reminded of of Paul's experience in Athens, right mm-hmm. when he's surrounded by um, all these monuments to Greek gods. He doesn't say, you know, you all are going to hell, and this is wrong, and that's wrong. He says, oh, I see you have a monument to an unknown god. Let me tell you about. Him and just uses mm-hmm. that as an opportunity to share the gospel. And um, I would like to see the church and, frankly, myself have more of a posture of, I'm I'm going to enter into other people's worlds. I'm going to enter into relationships, not with judgment, but just to just what what do you think? What do you what do you believe? What do you know? And what are the po- points of contact between what you believe and what I believe? Yeah, I think it's really hard as the Christian church (laughs) to the extent that we live um, with integrity enough to actually deserve that name, which we don't and we don't. Right. But um, it's really important for us to remember that, that even if we had a little thought experiment and agreed that we did, um, we don't own Jesus. Like Jesus doesn't belong to us and Jesus isn't limited by the bounds of our sense of propriety. And, you know, Jesus says that I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And we've found ways to say like, oh, that means, you know, when Jesus said that he was talking to his Jewish followers and he was talking about his Gentile followers and that's all it means. The end. Boom. I mean, maybe, maybe that's all it means. And also when I take scripture seriously, and we were saying that on the walk this morning, like however big your sense of mission is, it's not big enough. And so, you know, I think it's hard to have these conversations because it can be heard as me as a Christian speculating that I know better than 
someone of another faith. I mean, like too often we collapse it into a universalism that says to people like, oh, you really believe in Jesus, even though you don't know it. And that's not, um, that's not cute. <laughs> that, um, well, and it's just not true. I mean, right. well, because believing in Jesus is a particular thing. And if we're going to honor our faith, we've got to name that as a particular thing and not just collapse it into, okay, we all believe in the Right. Same I mean, thing, there are distinctions God. and and they matter. And, you know, I, I think um, Christ, so if we're looking at the difference between Jesus, the person who was born um, in Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth, who was Christ embodied on earth, um, and then Christ, the Messiah, the manifestation of the Son of God, doing this work of redemption. You know, there's just, there's a wildness and an uncontainableness to this. And Richard Ward talks about the universal Christ and just this idea that there are, I and I believe this is true, there are ways that God is active and at work in the world that are beyond our wildest imaginations beyond the scope of what we think, you know, we draw boundaries and I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that God does. Um, I'm not comfortable. Um, you know, there, there are definite and clear descriptions of judgment in scripture that I can't, I, that I personally would wish away, but I know enough to know that I can't, you know, I can't erase or, protect anyone, including myself, from Scripture. And I also know that the ways that those passages have been interpreted um, and that they become as settled interpretations and they become sort of, you know, when we read the Scripture, we are not even aware of the fact that we're reading it through the lens of that interpretation. And those interpretations are very much formed by the bodies of the men who declared them to be so, who, who for generations, people in authority have been saying this scripture means this, only this, nothing else, and here are the implications, and you need to believe that too. And, you know, I believe every word of scripture is truth, um, holy truth, transcendent truth, even ultimate truth, um, but I for sure don't think that I understand a lot of them, and that a lot of the things that I think I understand the meaning of, I'm, I'm, I don't know what they are, but i I bet some of them I'm very wrong about. And so I think just that sense of seeing points of connection and then allowing it to move you to awe and wonder about how are my, how is my understanding of God too small? Um, and also allowing it to cause you to wonder of, you know, again, what my own tradition teaches me to be true, which is the whole world belongs to God and that God is the one God and um, God has a vision for restoration that is unstoppable. <coughs> Pollen. Pollen. <laughs> and I'll just note, when we started this podcast, there were no um, dogs weed whackers, dogs, or saws going, <laughs> and um, now all sorts of lawn equipment around us going on. Sorry, friends. We're, we're outside on the porch in the open air with our vaccinated selves in airflow, and still, that's not ideal. Um, well, it's really, it's great. What am I thinking about, you ask? <laughs> no, I thought you were going to continue your thought. 
<laughs> okay, so if you guys were in this space, you just see Kate looking at me like, okay, and? it's your turn, <laughs> your serve. Okay, yes, what are you thinking about? Wow, well, thank you for that seamless transition. <laughs> we're real pros over here. Now I'm going to cough again. <laughs> I drank all my water. You're not going to cut any of this out, are you? Oh, absolutely not. No, this is all staying in. <laughs> um, what I'm thinking about, other than my hope that I'll be able to finish this without choking, is um, I'm just thinking about the Chauvin verdict, which we recorded last week before right. that had happened. Um, and we have also come to know about several other shootings since then. Um, but um, I guess I just... What I am thinking about that I feel like I want to say is um, how revelatory it is that it was so much, um, that there was so much uncertainty whether a police officer who was filmed suffocating a man in handcuffs, um, that, that the fact that it was still so much a possibility that that would be perceived as just and not a crime um, is so revelatory. I think that, you know, I hope that 50 years from now, you know, our grandkids, maybe our great, I don't know, depending on how time works, will be reading about that and just be shocked and astonished that there was, um, and, and also, the fact that so many people are authentically are celebrating just the most um, basic form of justice that could possibly, you know, it just, it shows us so much. Like, and so, I mean, people are asking, like trying to, trying to articulate how do you feel about it? And obviously had he not been convicted, I mean, I just it would have been just a desolation um, and, and I, and I can't take for granted that he was convicted and convicted on all three counts. And also, I just think the fact that we live in a country where a, a great majority of Americans think that he shouldn't have been convicted and think that he was the victim of racism. And I, and I, you know, read about people saying like that only happened. Well, I mean, I don't have to read about it. Like Tucker Carlson, Carlson is on TV every night saying, this was this was not um, the jury saying that 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 uh, the killing was unjust. This was the jury forced to do it because they were scared for their lives, right? So this was the jury saying, "Please don't hurt us again." And can we just note the dog whistles in that statement, right? So he's saying there are black people. Those black people are unreasonable. They are violent. They are you know super predators and people. You know, it's just all all of the racist dog whistles in that statement. Never mind the people who stormed the Capitol. <laughs> right. I mean, right. Like, those people were reasonable and patriots. And so, but I guess I just want to just name that and grieve that, that am I grateful that he was held accountable for his actions? Yes. Do, I am grateful that there were police officers and leaders within the community who clearly stood up and said this was not right. But, I mean, I'm not, I can't celebrate that because... The fact that it was in question is just such an indictment of, you know, I, I just think of the frog in the pot, right? And like, I don't know, I mean, most of us were just born into a country where 
things are so um, unjust, but also so ubiquitous and normalized that it's just hard to see. It's just hard to see it. It's hard to, to, you know, I mean, as a, as a white person who is taught that this is the way it is and it's no big deal. And you, you know, this is just what justice looks like. And so, but I just think it's really worth noting that how, how bad is it when it is an open question whether a law enforcement officer who chokes someone on camera for 10 minutes and we don't know if that's okay or not in America. And uh, it turned out that we decided that it wasn't okay. And then that was not a foregone conclusion. We had to celebrate that because it might have gone the other way. And what does that say about who's whose lives matter in this country and whose and who's don't. And, and then just the fact that we've had so many other police, I mean, three that I can think of that have happened just in the week since we've sat in these chairs doing this. And again, I feel like I know that people of every ethnicity are tired of hearing about it. And it's really important that you know, if, if people cannot get motivated to fix the system by anything other than I'm tired of having to talk about it, I'll take it. Like if, if, if it's not common humanity, if you can't see yourself in the suffering of the people who are, are shot and who are left behind and whose memories are desecrated in the attempt to justify it, if you can't see yourself in Micaiah Bryant, you know, being 16 years old and trying to defend yourself. And if you think it just is what it is, you know, I was reading Allie Henney and she pointed out, like, it's just interesting that we never question whether a police officer is allowed to shoot someone in defense of himself. But when a police officer pulls up to um, teenagers fighting and one of those teenagers has a knife, we don't even assume that she might be defending herself. Like that's, you know, so just, again, it's just, it's so ubiquitous and I think for white people, it's just so hard. It, it's not hard, but it is so painful to look at the reality of how different this country is from what we say it is. And we just, you know, we're talking about Nehemiah because we're getting ready to preach on it. And I'm just noticing that, you know, part of what he does before he starts is, you know, he makes... Um, an inventory of the state of things and it's bad like bad 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 and you can't but he doesn't just roll up and start repairing he has to look at the truth of how bad it is and the scope and the nature of the rebuilding work that is needed and I just feel like you know there are people who can teach us um, but we all have to want to repair to do the work of rebuilding and repairing more than we want to hold on to our illusions that basically everything's okay and it's just a little patch job that's needed and we can move on with the way things are. And we have to believe there is a lie. There's just a powerful lie that says um, there is no other, this is the best that it can be. And so the attempt to fix it will just make everything worse for everybody. And right now things are pretty good for almost everybody. And the people that it isn't good for, they don't matter. And they were dangerous. And so there's this lie and it's what's keeping people held back that says there's no way to have a country where everyone can be safe. So the 
best that we can do is have a country where some people are safe and other people die. And and if you can't believe that anything better is possible, then you're not going to work for anything better. And so as you know, as the if again, I just feel like the people of God have abandoned our work as as reconcilers, we've abandoned our work as people who cry out for justice. We've abandoned our work as people who tell the truth, and we've abandoned our work for people who um you know, articulate God's vision for what a holy community, what a truly Judeo-Christian community has looked like. We've abandoned that work. And so we are holding on to the status quo because it benefits us, which is also a theme in Nehemiah, that there are people who hinder his work and, um, you know, do, do their best to derail it and talks about why. And it's because they have connections to people um, powerful people and they would just rather not have a rebuilt Jerusalem. They like the state of disorder and um, insecurity because they're profiting off of it. Um, So, you know, nothing is new under the sun, but I do think that if we look at, if we take scripture seriously, we'll see that like we, we gotta, um, we gotta do some deep repenting work and, and um, we're not on the sidelines the majority of us are on the wrong side. Mm. And uh, I'm just thinking a lot, like, like there's no, there's no rejoicing. There's no rejoicing after a police officer is convicted of murder. Yeah. Um, after the, um, verdict came, um, a friend of mine, uh, in Nebraska sent me a text asking me how I felt. And my response was, um, relief, there wasn't rejoicing. Um, I, I was preparing myself for um, a, a, a not guilty verdict. But when he was found guilty, I wasn't celebrating because I know that there is a larger work. That there's more happening in our society to undermine rights, to undermine safety. And I can't help but think of um, when I was in uh, a college, I, I don't know if it was a psychology class or a sociology class, where I first encountered uh, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. right? So there's, uh, if you can imagine a pyramid, it says people have certain needs, uh, and at the top of the pyramid, it's, it's self-actualization, your, your best, highest self. Um, and you can't get there until all these other needs are fulfilled. And at the bottom uh, is the need for safety, and what's happening for us is that because we are fighting for basic safety, it means it's slowing our progress towards self-actualization. So there are times when I have to set aside, like me as an individual, set aside news about shootings and say, oh, yeah, oh yes, I can't forget to live. I can't forget to press forward in being human, in growing my life, um, because I can get stuck at this place. And, and it's hard because we're in it and we've got to face and fight these, um, 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 battles. Um, and it's necessary. It's not going to just go away. Um, but yeah, I find myself, um, feeling, that those who like 
things the way they are, that they're not upset about the Chauvin uh, verdict because it really, while it, it gives some hope, it really it changes. It doesn't change a lot. Well, in some it ways, it doesn't change a, the struggle. Yeah, in a deeply sort of demonically ironic way, it can reinforce the culture because people can lift up the story and say, "See, he was an anomaly, and the system worked for him." And I don't believe that an officer, you know, I years ago, years ago, I was serving in a church, and was serving. Um, with a senior pastor, um, and this person had been the senior pastor of this church for a long time, like years and years and years, like I think more than 10 years at that point. And uh, there was a, a season, I mean, this is years ago, and and there became, there was a financial crisis in the church, and people were not it wasn't that they didn't have the money they just weren't giving and there was a financial crisis and and the pastor was um i mean whatever that's stressful and it's hard and the pastor was frustrated that the leadership team wasn't like seeing the problem and addressing the problem and the pastor was frustrated that people were not giving and understanding you know and and we i was having a conversation with the pastor and the pastor said, like, well, these people just don't understand stewardship. And, and, you know, the culture of this church is just not generous. And it's not, you know, and I just, I mean, I said nothing because I am not a total dummy. Like, I can keep my mouth shut sometimes. But I just thought, like, goodness, like, you have been the leader of this community for more than 10 years. So now we have a problem. And you can't say, like, well, they don't. Like, you're they. <laughs> like, you may, like, Pottery Barn, baby. Like, this is your, you know, your community. So, and I think it's not that, I mean, you at least have to say we, right? So, I mean, I just yes. think he, yes. Chauvin has been a part of that particular police organization for what, like 20 something years. So it's not just like, oh, we hired this guy two weeks ago and he somehow slipped Some through renegade. our psychological yeah. profile yeah. and he, whatever. I mean, like, no, no, like dude was promoted. But, I mean, like th this culture tolerated and even celebrated him which means you can't just say one bad apple because he you know this is whatever I mean we are responsible for the cultures we create and the cultures we maintain and so again like I'm not without I, I also think it's important that I'm not without hope like I, I definitely you know I don't want to create a space where there's no difference between whether he's convicted or acquitted like there's a agreed. huge difference agreed and and so you know, it is a step yes. towards something and, and we, you know, we can only take it one step at a time, Definitely. but I think we really have to fight. It's more complex. We like easy stories. We like simple stories yes, and we just have to complicate this yes. narrative. Like yes. it is not a win. Um, it is not a cause for rejoicing. It's a step. It, um, it does not bring George Floyd back. Mm -hmm. um, George Floyd, who I would like to point out, does not need to be perfect or incident or innocent to deserve to be alive today, right? Like we just we we need to complicate those narratives, and you know, to the extent that there is one on the other side of like there's no hope, it doesn't matter. That like no, that's not true either. It does. It matters. It's just there's no simple emotions to wrap around that, and there's no simple story, and there's still just so much pain 
that we need to listen to um, and also just really stop and marvel at the fact that this was so uncertain that it would come out this way and that the fact that we so many people feel like we rejoice over this is deeply illustrative of, of how far we are from a just society and particularly one where there's liberty and justice for all. For all. Like we're just so, so far from that. Um, and I, I still, I believe that that's achievable. I believe yes. that that's possible. And I believe that God's people ought to be leading the charge for that and saying like, there is another way. And it doesn't require throwing anybody away like garbage. It doesn't require believing that everybody involved with law enforcement is just an evil, irredeemable racist who needs to go. I mean, like, it doesn't require that. Yes. It, we believe in redemption and we believe in change and we believe in transformation and we believe that cultures and communities can be shifted. We believe in all of that. So we should be part of giving hope but not a hope that's based on a lie or an illusion. So, anyway. Wow. So what are you preaching? Nehemiah. Oh, that's right. Yes. Starting this week, a new sermon series on Nehemiah. And I really can't say much more about that because I'm still <laughs> trying to figure out how to set up all of the weeks. And we... Um, details. So all those details and how to just really... I, I guess the... Um, we were talking about a lot on the walk beforehand. Just, um, I feel like Nehemiah gets preached occasionally. And I mean, just to what we're saying, like, I, I, I want to preach the story. I think it matters. I think obviously this story of, I'm sorry, I should, if you don't know who Nehemiah is, do not beat yourself up. It is not a part of the Bible that's very frequently preached or talked about. Um, the, the story is there was a period that we often ignore um, that I, hand to God, had never heard a word about until I went to seminary, right? So, the, um, but there's a, a huge movement in the life of the people of God as recorded in the Old Testament where there's a time when they're living in the promised land and then um, the, they're conquered and they go into exile and much of the work of the prophets is um, warning the people um, that their unfaithfulness will lead to disaster and then trying to explain to the people who have lost the promised land, who are like, hey, God, you said we live in this promised land for forever, so we're not living there now. So what does that mean? Does that mean you're not really God? Um, how, how do we worship you and be the promised, you know, the chosen nation if we're not living in the promised land? So much of the prophets um, are, are trying to make sense of that. And, and in an English Bible the prophets come last, and so right up until the gap, um, there's a gap, and then the New Testament shows up. And, and so this, this experience of exile is just a huge formative experience for our Jewish ancestors, our Hebrew ancestors, and it's part of our experience as well as Christians. And Nehemiah was a Hebrew who, uh, in exile, had ended up working for the Persian king Artaxerxes, who um, seceded Cyrus, and when Persia conquered the Babylonian, then the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. They had a different empire-building philosophy, which was closer to the Roman Empire-building philosophy, which is, we're going to conquer you, but we don't need to control every part of your life, and we find you to be much more pliant subjects if we let you live where you want to live and worship who you want to worship. So people won the right of return, and they were allowed to leave Babylon and go back to their homeland. Now, in the meantime, 
other people had moved in. And so there's just tension between whose land does this belong to anymore? And, um, and then they have to rebuild. And Nehemiah hears that while the temple has been rebuilt, the wall around the city of Jerusalem is still in ruins. And that has lots of practical and theological implications for the people trying to live there. Um, and so Nehemiah um, gets an unction to go back and do this work, even though he's kind of sitting very pretty in in the palace of the king and, and gets favor and goes back and does this work of rebuilding the wall. And so obviously it's a really rich um, text for us to learn from in this season where we are returning and we are rebuilding. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from, from Nehemiah for sure. So much we can learn from him and so many ways we need to emulate him. And I think that like every other person in scripture, he ain't Jesus and he (laughs) is not the savior. And, you know, like all of us, um, you know, God used um, him and and God worked in spite of him. And so there's things, um, so we were talking about today, you know, there's parts of his story that are really um, troubling and I don't want to ignore those. I feel like a lot of times when we preach them, we just sort of, here's it, the hero, here's the hero, be like him, let's move on. And I think we need to um, lift him up as a real human who was used by God and was flawed and who resisted and who um, innovated in some ways that um, were deeply unfaithful and unhelpful. And there were just parts of who God was that he understood and parts of the covenant that I think he really misunderstood because like many of us, he read the covenant through the eyes of the culture he was a part of. And so he, he misunderstood them. So anyway, we're going to do that for the next, I don't know, four or five weeks at the Grove. Um, and we'll see That's what good. happens. Yeah, it must be a Holy Spirit thing because um, around Easter, I was thinking, okay, when we get close to returning, Nehemiah would be good. And so um, I'll be looking at Nehemiah toward the end of May going into June as we look to return to in-person services in July. Uh, this week, or for the next few weeks, actually, uh, leading up to Pentecost Sunday in three weeks, I think I'm going to be preaching on... Um, that's the Holy Spirit and um, a person in work and reminding us Presbyterians that uh, we've been sustained, nurtured all this time by the Holy Spirit. And um, ju- just, a, just a basic teaching about the Holy Spirit for the Which next few weeks. I think is so needed. And I think that people don't understand that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, right? Yes. So, so they're... I think sometimes... As a matter of fact, that's the text I'm preaching this Sunday. Uh, I think it's in John where Jesus says, I will, when I'm going to go away right. and I'm going to send you a comforter, another advocate. And, uh, and it's good for you that I'm going good. away. Like to, yes. to really pay attention to, I think, just this amazing thought that we think, okay, those people, and we often think back nostalgically, like, what would it be like? If we were there. What would it be like if, you know, and people say, like, who do you want to eat with if you could eat with anyone in human history? And every good Christian says, Jesus. And the reality is, you know, dude, you could eat with Jesus every day. Every day. Like, that's what Jesus is saying is, as close as I am to the however many of you are sitting around this table, I'm going to be even closer to you when I go away and send back the Spirit who is the spirit in me is going to be in you. And I don't think that we get that. And even sometimes we, we market the Holy Spirit as this like mysterious, unpredictable, unknowable other who's alive. I mean, you know, and is God mysterious? Yes. And is God unpredictable? Yes. And is God unknowable? Yes. But also we know who the Holy Spirit is 
because we know who Jesus is. And mm-hmm. so you have to understand that there's, you know, three in one, one in three. Good luck with that if you wander into Trinity land, but well, it's no, really we're important. We're not trying to explain the Trinity. No, I don't want to explain the Trinity, but I think that once we preach the Holy Spirit well, then Trinity transforms to from some sort of theological mental gymnastics. I have to hurdle clear in order to be an Orthodox Christian and becomes like, oh, how else do I... How else can I make sense well, of? Well, we've, we've said in this podcast already, and we've said many times before, you know, the difference between what a thing looks like and what a thing actually is. It is the Holy Spirit that makes the church the church. It is the Holy Spirit that makes a Christian, an ordinary person, a genuine follower of Jesus. It is the person and power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do anything good for God anything that we can label as godly. And so you can, um, you can mimic, you can uh, try to make it look like it's the Spirit, but what we want, what we want to embrace is the genuine work of the Holy Spirit, which, again, as we've already said in this podcast today, sometimes, oftentimes, maybe even most of the time, doesn't work on our timetable. So we might right. declare, okay, this is what God says, and the Holy Spirit might wait <laughs> six months, say, okay, oh. now it's time to go to work. I wonder if any prophets in Scripture ever had the experience of <laughs> declaring a revelation of God and then having it not. This is my sarcasm. And Bible sarcasm <laughs> doesn't work unless you're talking to another Bible nerd, so never mind. But yes, I mean, often this yes. was the problem with being yes. a prophet of God. Like Jonah, most famously, is like, no, I don't want to go tell those Ninevites that you're going to destroy them because I know who you are and yeah. you're going to not destroy them. So A, they're not going to be destroyed and I hate them and I want them to be destroyed. But B, number two, I'm going to look like an idiot and I don't like that. And this is the thing that God's revelation always exists to transform and change outcomes. And so, again, what do prophets not do? Predict the future. And anybody, I just think anytime you have someone talking about, I have a spirit of prophecy and here's what's going to happen in the future, you need to, like, take several steps back because that is not how the prophetic spirit works in Scripture. Now, it is in Hollywood pop culture. um, But, yeah, and I just think, like, the other thing that people want to understand about the Holy Spirit and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Because I think as typical Presbyterians or typical mainliners, the Holy Spirit just kind of weirds us out, freaks us out, and makes us feel uncomfortable. But to say, like, the Holy Spirit is that um, quantity of grace that multiplies the loaves and fishes, right? That makes a thing more powerful than it is in in its natural essence. It is that which is in us but is not of us that makes us holy mm-hmm. when we're, we're not. And so I just think, you know, there's, I think to have a sermon series pre-Pentecost saying, like, let me just demystify and um, also elevate our consciousness of what the Holy Spirit is, is is really, really helpful because it's more than just this, you know, this state of ecstasy that might make us make weird sounds or Mm -hmm. fall down on the floor. I'm not saying that's not part of the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying if that's all you think the Holy Spirit is, basically like a religious sideshow, you you are missing out. Well, and this is part of my sense of call to prepare us to go back to in-person services because um, what we've been saying for the past year is that we do not yet fully know what the quote-unquote new normal is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And we must 
trust the Holy Spirit. We must rely on the Holy Spirit because the truth is we are um, too weak. Too dumb. I was about to say too dumb. Too sinful. <laughs> yes. To to fully know and get it. And so we there's there's just a level of trust we have to have knowing that um, when we step in faithfulness, the Holy Spirit will supply everything we need to go to that next step. Mm -hmm. And we will, if we stay open, we will be astonished by what the Holy Spirit does. And we will stop thinking, oh, the Holy Spirit only did those kinds of things in the Bible. Right. And we can, we can begin to celebrate, oh, the Holy Spirit is in our midst. The Holy Spirit is working in us. Here is the evidence. Right. And so when you lead your elders through an exercise of saying, what do we believe the Lord is saying to us? And that is through through some prayer and some meditation and some conversation. And what results in that comes from the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. Like when we Absolutely. figure something yes. out, yes. that's the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, at the Grove, our, our final guiding principle is we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. And it's really interesting. We got some pushback once from a consultant, somebody from the, actually somebody from the Presbytery was like, you need to change that. So you just declare we are led by the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, no, no, no. We're trying to be led by the Holy Spirit. Right. And, and I think an important part of. Boy, that's a big, I'm sorry. That's just a big distinction. It is because, because it, when, when you say we are led by the Spirit, there, I, because I know you, what I, what I think um, your hesitation is, it's 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 a it's a it's a presumption mm -hmm. that whatever we do, well, the spirit must be in it. Right, and also the idea I think like people have this myth in their head that if I'm full of the Holy Spirit, I'll just have certainty and yes. favor, and you know, it's this idea that that when you know when, you know, like this idea that. There'll be no risk. Right. And the reality is when you, I think when you're being most faithful, you probably feel weakest and most uncertainty because you're walking by faith and not by sight. And so I think, you know, when on our own, we think we're drawn to things that are not of God. So we're drawn to the sure thing and the bet and the, you know, these people are in and these people are out. And we love to call that God's spirit. But I think that is the spirit of, you know, Satan and and when we are because yeah. God is so far beyond our wildest hopes and imaginings it's so it's so important that we recognize that we are fumbling and stumbling and trying to be led by the spirit because if we if we do what seems certain to us it is going to be a spirit but I don't think it's going to yeah. be the spirit of Jesus and often we don't realize the work of the spirit until it's in the rearview mirror right, we, right. we we see it in yeah. retrospect right it's right. like right. oh that's what you were doing right. God Right. So I, I think it's really important um, just to, again, we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit in, I think, most mainline churches and just the saturation of the Holy Spirit, not in certain things that are uncomfortable to us culturally, but in everything. So, mm -hmm. so the reality is you're already full of the Holy Spirit and in touch with the Holy Spirit in ways that you don't you don't put that label on it, but yes. that doesn't mean it's not so. Yes. Um, and, and we need to understand that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, cool. Well, we're done. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, thanks for listening to this podcast full of coughing, sneezing, and awkward transitions. <laughs> we'll work on it for next week. If you want to find more wow. about 
Yolando Hinton and what the Holy Spirit is doing through him and the saints at Derida Presbyterian Church. That is D-E-R-I-T-A pres.org. I love that you spell that. It's so well, great. I mean, Thank you. You don't know how to spell it. Um, and you can worship with them on their YouTube channel. You should. And you can catch Yolando's back catalog of messages on the Derida Church podcast, which is on Membean. Podbean. Podbean. Every time. And now I'm just like psyched out, right? Every time I start to say it, I'm like, no, I say it wrong. So what, I switch it. What's and then so I, funny is I can see it on your face. It's like, oh, she'll get it right this time. No, and you, I just oh, wish nope, that I'll just pause and you could just say it. Pod Bean. It's a podcast and it is on Pod Bean yes. as opposed to Membeam, which is a reading uh, service that CMS uses. Anyway, whatever. If you would like to find out more about the Grove and what God is doing that there, here with us, our website is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can worship with us um, even after we go back to in-person. We'll have a great live stream that will be premiering on our Facebook page, which is public at 10 a.m. And we would love to worship with you there. And um, you can find old messages from the Grove on our podcast which is uh the grove church podcast and it's on itunes or wherever you guys you are everywhere get your podcast thank you for listening we will talk to you next week